chapter 5, we really camped out in verse 21, which says to submit to one another in the Lord. And we, we camped out there to just really wrap our minds around this concept of submission. Why do we struggle with submission? Why or how does God define submission? How are we called as Christians to practice submission in the life of the church? And then at the end of chapter 5 and going into chapter 6, Paul gives the Ephesians three different applications of this submission principle. Right? The first one is the one that we'll be studying this morning. Uh, that's in the realm of marriage. The second one deals with parents and children. And then the third one is that of master and bondservant. And we'll look at these in the coming weeks. So for this morning, let's just go ahead and read, uh, starting in verse 21 for context, and then we'll read on down all the way through verse 33. Even though we are not going to be covering all of that, we're just going to get the context of the text. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? All right. A guy named uh, J. Mortimer Adler wrote a book about how to read books. Sounds fascinating, right? Uh, in this book, he says that sometimes it's in our best interest to not only read the beginning of a book, but also the end of a book before we actually read the book in its entirety. And the reason why, he said, is if you read the beginning and the end of a book, then you kind of understand the, the, the main argument, the, the central point that the author is trying to drive home. So that gives you a little bit more context. It gives you a grid through which you can process the rest of the material of the book. Well, I think it would be helpful for us to do that together this morning, to jump to the end of our text so that we can make better sense of uh, the text that we'll be studying here together today. So beginning in verse 31, Paul describes the nature of marriage. He says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. All right. Uh, we're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. Uh, that's a lot to wrap your mind around. Two become one, but there's more. According to Paul, this thing called marriage where two become one it was designed to point to something beyond itself. So when God created marriage, marriage wasn't the end goal. Marriage is something that's valuable in and of itself, but it's also meant to point beyond itself. Well, what is it meant to point to? Why did God design it this way? Why is it one man and one woman for life and not three women and one man, or three men and one woman, or three women and three men where the six become one? That's bad math. Why not one man and one woman for 20 years? Well, the reason why God designed this one flesh union the way that he did, one man and one woman joined together for a lifetime, is because the design of marriage was supposed to point to the gospel. Right? So look at verse 32. It says, this mystery is profound. So this, this understanding of marriage didn't always exist. There was a time in which it was a mystery. And it was a profound mystery. But Paul says now, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, in the text we just read, Paul said Christ and the church, but I said it points to the gospel. Why am I using different language there? Well, I'm really just trying to communicate the same point. You understand that the gospel is the story of the way that Christ has laid down his life 
to love and serve the church, right? He came and slayed the dragon and got the girl and, you know, and we're all going home happy. So you can see this if you go back to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, right? So that's the gospel. Now, the reason why we need to see and understand this reality is because in this morning's text, Paul gives husbands and wives two things. He gives them marriage obligations and he gives them gospel motivations. Marriage obligations and gospel motivations. So the marriage obligations are this. Wives, submit to your husbands. Submit and respect. I think Paul uses the word respect at the end of verse 33 as sort of interchangeable with submit here in verse 22. So wives, you submit to your husbands. We good? Okay. Husbands, your call is to love your wives by laying down your life for them, to serve them. Those are the marriage uh, obligations. Those are the imperatives, the commands. But Paul is a pastor, not a dictator, right? So he doesn't just say, this is what you have to do because I said so. For every imperative, for every command that he gives, he also gives an indicative or a gospel reason why you must uh, obey this command, why this obligation exists. And these are the whys, right? The gospel motivation for wives who are called to submit to their husbands is because the church submits to Christ. And marriage is supposed to point to the gospel. So wives, your role, your obligation in marriage is meant to point beyond yourself and is meant to point to the gospel in this very specific way. You're supposed to picture the church to the world. The gospel motivation for husbands who are called to love sacrificially is your self-sacrificial love is meant to point to Christ. It's meant to picture Christ to the world. The world is lost and dying. They can't see. They don't have spiritual eyes. They don't understand. What does it look like that Christ died to save the world? Well, you should be able to look at a husband and see the way he serves his wife and understand. That's your gospel motivation. In this morning's sermon, we only have time to look at the first obligation. We're going to be looking at wives. We're going to be looking at wives and submission. Next week, we're going to look at husbands and self-sacrificial love. Now, in order for us to understand what it means that wives must submit to their husbands, we need to understand two things. We need to understand what submission is, and we need to understand what it means. That's a twofer. All right, we'll get through this. Uh, we need to know how the church submits to Christ. Because that's what the text says, right? It says, wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. Well, how does, how does the church submit to Christ? That's not something I've ever really spent a lot of time thinking about. So we, get, we need to think about that. Okay, and those are going to be your two points this morning. Uh, the first point, what is submission? That's going to be a quick one. So if you blink, you're going to miss it. So if you're going to sleep during the sermon, maybe this is the part to go to sleep on. Or don't go to sleep at all. But if you're going to, this is a short and easy one. Then we're going to really hang out in point number two. Okay, so point number one, what is submission? Last week, I gave you a sort of pocket-sized definition of submission. It's not very pocket-sized. Usually we do better. But this is what we said submission is. Submission is what happens when we recognize the pattern of authority and order that God has established, and then we pattern our lives accordingly. That's what submission is. We recognize the authority structures God has put in place, and then we pattern our lives accordingly. This week, for this sermon, I want us to narrow down our understanding of submission. I want us to ask, okay, that's true generally, but what does that look like, recognizing God's authority, patterning my life after it? What does that look like in marriage? What does that look like for a wife who is in an authority relationship with her husband in this covenant relationship of marriage? Is Paul saying when he says wives have to submit to their husbands, that wives have to say yes to everything that their husbands want and no to everything that their husbands don't want? Is that what he's getting at? Does it mean that wives don't ever get to win an argument or guide the family with wisdom and insight? Does he mean that a wife can never correct her husband? I think the answer to all of those has to be no. I don't think I can come up with a better argument uh, definition of what uh, submission for a wife looks like than John Piper. This, this is what he says. The basic meaning of submission would be to be disposed to yield to the husband's authority in Christ and to be inclined to follow his leadership. 
to be disposed and inclined to submit and to follow his leadership. The reason why I think that this definition is very helpful is because it talks about uh, submission at a heart level, right? It communicates that ultimately submission is a disposition of the spirit. It's a posture of the heart towards the authority structure that God has built into the fabric of marriage, right? And let me be clear, this heart posture, this disposition should very obviously lead to a certain outward behavior. It does, it's not just a heart disposition. The heart should lead then to a certain kind of behavior. But if you don't understand that it's a heart issue first and foremost, you're going to be missing out. Uh, you're not going to understand submission in the way that I think God intends for you to understand it. So submission is on the one hand not rebelling against authority, but on the other hand it's also not things like kowtowing or going with the flow but doing it begrudgingly. It's not uh, saying yes, honey, as a way to manipulate the situation, right? We're going to talk more about that in the future. I wonder what's going on. Maybe I just, maybe I'm, maybe I'm bringing the thunder too much. It's interfering with the waves and the signals. All right. So, how does this, this submission, which is not just performance but posture, how does this submission work itself out in real life, in the nitty-gritty of marriage, especially marriage in a fallen world? Well, that leads us to point number two. How does the church submit to Christ? I've got a whole bunch of subpoints for you here. Number one, the church submits to Christ willingly. Willingly. Now, we talked about it last week, but I feel like we just need to say it again this week. We need to talk about the fact that Christian submission is unique and that it is something that we willingly do. It's not something that we're forced to do, right? In order to help Christians better understand this, author Tim Challies, he says, you know, maybe it's more helpful to think about two separate words. Think about subjection and submission, right? In subjection, you have a leader or an organization or whatever, and, and this person or this group of people, they are forcing you to obey their will, right? They're exerting their authority upon you through threats or violence or intimidation or whatever, okay? In contrast to that, submission is the act of someone who acknowledges the authority structures in place and then willingly arranges him or herself accordingly, the difference between subjection and submission is the difference between a man who forces his love on a woman and a man who wins the heart of a woman, right? That's the difference. Now, it's true that marriages have in the past been forced and in, and in many places in the world today, they still are forced. But marriage is still by design a union of the willing. Wives are not in subjection to their husbands. It's, I just want to make that very clear. Wives are not in subjection to their husbands. Why? Because they willingly enter into this covenant relationship where this authority structure is in place. By way of analogy, I think the same thing is true of church members, right? Scripture is very clear. I mean, ridiculously clear. It says, obey your leaders, right? Submit to your leaders in the Lord. And then it goes on to say, don't make their job miserable. So you guys are doing a good job, man. Nobody's making my life miserable in here. I love you guys. Although I did choose to bring that up for a reason. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Church members are called to obey the authority of the leaders in the church, but you have to remember that uh, Christians are members of a church covenant by choice, Nobody forces you to join the member of a church. This is not a theocratic state that we live in. We're not living in Calvin's Geneva. We're not living in, you know, the UAE. You have a choice to be a part of this covenant community or not. So neither pastors nor husbands have the right to use force to bring about compliance to their authority. Now, parents have that right. It's called discipline. And if I see my kids on the floor one more time during this service, I might stop this sermon entirely and go down there and show them my authority. The state has that right. The state can force compliance. That's the reason why the Lord has given the state the power of the sword, Romans 13. We're going to talk more about that later in the sermon. But not the husbands. The husbands don't have the kind of authority that can force compliance. The kind of authority that we as husbands have is the authority to, to look at this book, 
to try with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our strength with the help of the Lord, the grace of God, to understand what it says and what it means for our lives and then to look at our wives and go, honey, this is what Jesus says. I think this is what we need to do. Follow me as I follow Christ, right? We have the authority to die to ourselves and to woo our wives into a joyful submission as we lay down our lives sacrificially to serve them well. Now, before moving on to the next little subpoint here, I want to throw this out. Husbands, I, I want you to know that for you to try to subject your wives, maybe I'll take my coat off, maybe it's missing. It's, oh, it's up here maybe? Uh, huh? Handheld? Okay, I'll go to the handheld if it happens one more time. But man, I feel like a celebrity pastor with the, with the thing on my head. I don't want to give that up. This is the best part of my week. Okay. Uh, for a husband to try to subject his wife to his authority, to try to force her to obey and respect his authority, that is, it's way more sinful than a wife who does not submit to her husband's authority, right? Not that it's a competition, but if it was a competition, your wife's inability to really fully respect your authority, it's not nearly as bad as you abusing your wife and trying to subject her to your authority in any number of different ways. Okay. Number two, the church submits to Christ confidently. The church submits to Christ confidently. What I mean here is that the church can submit to Christ with complete and utter trust, right? That, that Christ will never lead her astray. He'll never lead her down the wrong path. The church has every reason to trust in Christ because he's loved us, he's bought us, he's He's sealed us with his Holy Spirit. He's leading us to the day of redemption. He guarantees that we're going to get there. Just, there's no reason for us not to be hopeful. But how can husbands expect to have that same kind of confidence from their wives? How can wives expect to, how can they follow their husbands with that same kind of confidence that the church has in Christ? I mean, husbands are sinners. And sinners don't always lead well. Sinners rarely lead well. As a husband, I can tell you that I feel like I rarely lead well. I mean, we're getting there. You know, the job's getting done. I just don't know if I'm doing a great job. I don't know if I'm killing it, you know. And sometimes husbands and their leadership, it's just absolutely abysmal. It's just atrocious. It's a train wreck. So how can wives submit to their husbands with this kind of confidence? Well, there's a couple of things. One, ladies... No matter where your husband is on his leadership journey, right? He's really like Christ and he's crushing it or he's really not doing great at all. If your husband is a Christian, you can have confidence that he will grow in his ability to lead your family well. If your husband is a Christian, and I cannot be more clear on that, if your husband is not a Christian, you don't have any real reason to be able to trust in that, right? So I'm, I'm going to talk about what if you're married to a man who's not a Christian. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But if, if you're married to a man who is a Christian, you can have confidence that he's going to have more fruit of the Spirit, right? More love, more patience, more kindness, more gentleness, more self-control, more humility. And more of those things in a man produces a better leader, right? Men do not believe the lie that even masquerades as a Christian teaching that says that more humility, more gentleness, more kindness, more love is anti-masculine. No, those things are typified in the person and work and ministry of Jesus Christ. To be more of these things is to be more of a man, not less of it. And wives, if your husband is a Christian, you can have confidence that he's going to grow in those things. He will become a better leader. For some people, that might be like a year-long journey. For some people, that may be like a 50-year-long journey, right? I know of a family, a guy that I discipled, and it has been like 15 years, and he has grown, but it has taken every last second of those 15 years to get him where he is today. It's just long and arduous, but we are getting there, okay? Because the Spirit is truly at work in his, in his life. My wife can tell you that I have not arrived as a leader in my marriage. I can tell you that right now I feel like I'm doing an unusually mediocre job as a leader in our home. But if you were to ask Amber, hey, what was Sean like at the age of 19 when you guys got married? Oh man, she, she could tell you some stories. Maybe, maybe catch lunch with us and ask her what I was like at the age of 19. She'll tell you that the spirit is real. 
The spirit is real, man. 19-year-old Sean versus soon-to-be 33-year-old Sean, that's a big difference. Now, if your marriage is still young and you can't, like, see this track record of growth in your husband, you can't look back at that and say, oh, man, yeah, I can have hope because I see the way God's already worked in his life. Well, well, then just trust in God's word. You may not be able to trust in your experience, but you can always trust in God's word. And God's word says that those who are in Christ always grow to be more like Christ. Now, I'm not saying that your husband's going to be perfect, but I'm saying that there's going to be progress. Okay. Now, what about if your husband isn't kind or gentle or humble? What if he doesn't listen? What if it seems like he's never going to grow into this godly picture of a husband that you see in Scripture? How can you confidently submit to him? Well, that's where last week's sermon comes into play. So if you weren't here last week, one of the things that we said is that our submission is ultimately not submission to any man or any group of men in an organization or power structure. Our submission to everything is ultimately submission to the Lord because he is the one who has sovereignly placed those authority structures where they are in our lives, right? And so our confidence in submission to our husbands doesn't have to be rooted and grounded in our husband's performance, Our confidence in our husband as the leader of our household is ultimately confidence in our Lord, who is the Lord of our husband, who is the Lord of our household. He is sovereign over all authority in our lives, even our dumb, hard-headed, spiritually immature husbands. And that's why verse 22 says that we are to submit to our husbands' wives as to the Lord. Sometimes in life, you're called to submit to authority structures, that don't steward their authority well, right? So you think about an employer who has to submit to their boss who's really just an idiot and they've just managed to become a boss because they haven't died in 30 years and they just keep on trucking, right? Sometimes elders have to submit to the authority of an elder vote that they lose. They just sort of have to trust the collective wisdom and the power of the spirit even though they may not agree with the decision in that authority structure. Sometimes we have to submit to the state's decision about certain things, maybe a new tax code. I, I, you know, I don't know, but we, we have to submit. Either, even if we don't agree, we think, ah, that's not really what the Constitution means there. We still have to submit. And sometimes in our marriages, wives must submit to their husbands even when they're not being very godly or wise. We are not called to submit to the authority that God has placed in our lives as long as we agree with the way that that authority is always exercised. As long as everything's running smoothly. Peter and Paul both told Christians in their letters that they needed to submit to the ruling authorities. And the ruling authorities to which they were referring were people who were trying to kill Christians. I tell you, as a pastor, you are called to submit to the authority of this government in the United States even though they allow us to murder babies every single day in this country. We're going to talk a little bit more about what it means to not submit at the end of the sermon. But what if your husband's not a Christian? Well, I love God's word, man. (laughs) It's just rarely you're going to find a situation where you're just, you're reading, you're studying, you're like, ah, but what about this? And then you search the scriptures and there's no answer. God's word is full of all of the wisdom you need. It's entirely sufficient for all you need for life and godliness. So Peter, anticipating this, he says this, Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, there he means Christians, they're not Christians, they don't obey the word, so that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now that respectful, that's that same word from verse 33, which I think is also synonymous with the word submission in verse 22. So Peter is saying, listen, you still submit to your husband and it's possible that your submission to your husband may actually lead him to the Lord. We're gonna talk more about what it looks like if you're married to an unbeliever and he tries to get you to submit in a way that's ungodly. And we're going to talk about certain authority that must be rebelled against later. Now, I realize that this sermon is kind of heavy on, don't worry, we're going to get there. But don't worry, we're going to get there. Okay, number three. The church submits to Christ uniquely. Unique New York. Uniquely. What do I mean when I say uniquely? I mean submission will be different in different contexts for different families. 
right? I'm not going to spend a super long time on this. You just have to remember that this model is the church submitting to Christ. And the church's submission to Christ is not going to look the same today in modern Iran as it did in ancient Rome or, you know, the, when the gospel came to the blue-faced pagans of Saxony. You know, it's just the, the submission in different contexts and different cultures and different ages is going to look different. The essence of it, the, the willingness to submit to the lordship of Christ in every single way is always there. But the way that that submission manifests itself will look different. Think about it like this, by way of analogy, right? Uh, parents are commanded in the Lord to raise their children up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord, right? Deuteronomy 6, right? Raise them up in the way that they should go, right? You talk about it as you're walking by the way, as you rise up in the morning, as you lay down at night. You have it posted on doorposts in your home. It should be like frontlets between your eyes. The point is, your whole job as a parent, your primary work as a parent, is to make sure that your children grow up knowing the Lord. You can't control whether or not they get saved, but you can control whether or not you're teaching them about Christ. But that manifests itself very differently for different families and different contexts and different cultures. You know, even in our own tiny church, we have some parents here who do public school. We have some parents here who do homeschool. We don't have any private schoolers. We need to start doing more ministry to the wealthy here in Decatur. Get some Decatur heritage folks up in here. You know what I'm saying? Amen. Uh, but I think... If you've got the public school parents and the homeschool parents and the private school parents who are really trying to disciple their children well, you got them in the same room, they would probably all tell you, yeah, I'm trying to raise my kids in the discipline and admonition of the Lord, but there's Christian liberty and there's freedom and how we can choose to approach to do that as long as we're trying to make sure that we do that. You know, you, you think about a mom who has a husband who's got a job who allows her to stay home and homeschool. That's fantastic. But think about the young single mother with three children in, in the inner city of Chicago who just gets saved. You know, she's working two jobs to keep food on the table, to pay the rent. You're going to tell her that she has to homeschool her kids? It's not an option. But you can teach her how to disciple her children given her current context. So my whole point here is just that... Uh, Submission is not an option for wives, but we should be slow to judge people in different contexts and different scenarios where that submission may not look the same as it does in our own house, right? Okay. Number four, the church submits to Christ lovingly. Lovingly. 1 John 1, 9 says that we Christians love because he, God, first loved us. So all the love that we have to give out to God and to other people, including in our marriage between wives and husbands, the only love that we have to give out is the love that God has already given us, right? And, and in the gospel, Christ has given us all of himself. He has given us all of his love. And so the church responds in kind by submission, and the same thing should be true in marriage, right? Husbands, and we're going to talk about this next week. We're going to talk about, and, you know, if parts of this week make certain women, like, uncomfortable. Next week should make every man in the room uncomfortable because I'm going to give you a standard that's so high that you'll never be able to meet it, right? But you're supposed to love your wife so powerfully that she is joyfully willing to enter into uh, a, a submission relationship with you. But what if you don't feel the love, Right? What if my husband isn't giving me a reason to love him right now? What if he's being a real jerk? What if the love is gone? What if it feels like I haven't loved my husband in years? How can I submit to him in love? Well, this is why it's so important to remember that marriage is not a mere social contract. contract. Marriage is a covenant. And as a covenant, you will remember, is it's a relationship grounded in a promise. We enter into a marriage covenant as a way of saying, I love you, and I'm committing myself to loving you through action, even if I don't feel like I love you in the moment. Right? We're grounding our relationship in a promise that says we won't stop acting out our love for each other, even if we stop feeling our love for each other. That's what it means to be in a marriage covenant. It's not uncommon for people who get divorced to say, you know, we just fell out of love. But if you're in a marriage covenant, that's just not something you get to say. It's just not how it works. 
a covenant assumes the possibility and perhaps even the likelihood that you will fall out of love. That's the reason why it exists. So that you stay committed even when you don't feel those butterflies anymore. Even when that really cute wife that you married doesn't look so cute as she's throwing plates up against the wall in an argument. That has never happened in my home, by the way. Just throwing that out there. Throwing that out there? Ah, here we go. You know, uh, I think a marriage covenant is like a godlier version of a prenuptial agreement. Or maybe I should say it the other way. A prenuptial agreement is like a very ungodly, like in bizarro world, backwards land. It's like the evil inverse of what a marriage covenant is. In a prenuptial agreement, uh, you have two people who are getting ready to enter into marriage, and they recognize the reality that marriage is hard and it's difficult, and there's a possibility that they're going to fall out of love. And so what they do is they work out the terms of their separation upon mutually agreeable terms in advance. You know, like, hey, you get the toaster, I get the cat, you get the house, I get the BMW, you know, and then we'll part our ways and we'll be happily ever after, happily. Well, a covenant does something similar. It assumes that problems are going to come, that they're going to arise, that marriage is going to be difficult, that we may fall out of love. But instead of planning for how to part ways and divide the loot, it says no matter what, divorce is not an option because love is more than a feeling. It's a commitment. It's a promise. This is the love that compels the church to joyfully submit to Christ. We are in a marriage covenant with the Lord. Now, another aspect of this loving submission is that it is not in any way performance-based. The church does not submit to Christ in hopes of earning his love by submitting so well. Oh man, I'm going to do so, I'm going to submit to Christ so well, I'm going I'm to obey his word, I'm going to read and pray and go to church and give and feed, I'm going to do all these things so well, and Christ is going to love me. No, Christ loved us when we were unlovable. He, he saved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins when we were his enemies, when we were ugly and dirty and nasty. We didn't deserve his love, but he came and he loved us anyways. And we can't undo that love. We can't sin our way out of that covenant commitment. He won't let us. He's making us holy. Wives, I just want you to know the same thing this morning. I know that so much of what passes for Christian teaching for women is performance-based. It's all about how to do and to be enough to earn, to be the mom that everyone respects, to be the wife that really deserves a husband, you know, to be this, the Proverbs 31 woman is held up and it says, you gotta be her exactly. And only if you can be her can you find your true value and worth as a mother, mother and a wife and as a woman of God. But that is anti-gospel rhetoric. It's the exact opposite of the gospel. So I want you to know that your love that you have from your husband it's not based on your performance and even if you feel it waning you should know that ultimately you're still loved in Christ even if your husband's love fails you men don't you dare make your wives feel like they have to perform for you in order to earn your love you can you can speak the gospel to them with your words but then when you treat them like that you're just undermining everything that you say That's anti-gospel behavior. That's something that all of us in this room, all the men, all the husbands, all the future husbands need to be cognizant of, and it's something that we all probably need to repent of. It's something we all probably slip into. Amber, I'm sorry. If I ever make you feel like you have to perform to earn my love, you don't. I love you. No matter what happens, I love you. Number five. The church submits to Christ solely. S-O-L-E-L-Y. I'm, I'm saying solely here because I already used the word uniquely and I could not think of a better synonym. So bear with me. What I mean to say is this. Uh, wives only have to submit to their husbands, not to other men. Okay? There is a brand of complementarianism out there, which is what I've taught in Sunday school, which is what we believe in this church. Men and women complement each other. Women submit, husbands lead sacrificially. That they complement each other. That means something for the church and for the home, so on and so forth. There's a brand of complementarianism out there that says that uh, women are called to submit to all men. 
And I'm telling you that complementarianism, according to the Bible, says that as you submit to your husband, you're not escaping uh, submission, you're just narrowing it, right? You're, you're, you're protecting yourself from the world of men who are constantly trying to get you to submit to them. Even, you're even transferring your submission. So uh, when Paul says in verse 22, submit to your own husbands, he's limiting the realm of submission in your life. Right? So even if, even if you're a young si- single woman and you're under your father's authority and headship, maybe you haven't moved out and become an adult on your own and you haven't been married, when you get married, you are coming out from under your father's authority and entering into an authority relationship with your husband, but with your husband alone. And that's what that whole two becoming one thing is all about. Go back to verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. The man leaves the father and the mother, but so does the wife, right? So does the the bride, the woman. So there's a transfer of authority. There's even a narrowing, uh, excuse me, a transfer of submission, even a narrowing of uh, submission. That was a quick sub-point. Number six, the church submits to Christ comprehensively. I'm gonna, if, you're, if you're taking notes, this is going to mess your notes up. I'm sorry, I couldn't think of a better way to say this. But wives submit to their husbands comprehensively, but not completely. Comprehensively, but not completely. Verse 24. Wives, submit to your husbands in everything. In everything. In everything. That's the comprehensive part. Now, I want to thank Paul for writing this verse in such a way that makes modern women about as uncomfortable as they can possibly be, right? It's already tough. He's already said, wives, submit to your husband. And like modern women are like, submit to who? What? You know, like, I ain't submitting to nobody. So you got that problem. We all bristle at authority. But, you know, the idea of a woman submitting to a man in any kind of way is already problematic. And then he says, submit in everything. And all the women are like, all right, that's a step too far, right? Uh, don't worry, women, if that's you, if that makes you uncomfortable, what God commands from men next week is going to make all the men in the room just as uncomfortable. It's, it's equally weighty. But actually, I don't think it should make us uncomfortable at all. Uh, now, it's easy for me to say that as a man, but hear me out, okay? I think the reason why is we just have to remember what submission is ultimately. It's a, it's a heart posture. It's an inclination. It's a, it's a disposition to follow our husband's leadership. So, it shouldn't be surprising then that we see this sort of universal language built into it. You shouldn't have an inclination to follow some of your husband's leadership, a heart posture to only, only let him lead you sometimes. Right? If you remember our gospel motivation, it's the church submitting to Christ. Does the church submit to Christ partially? Does the church only submit to Christ on some things? Does, does she just sort of pick and choose where she wants to submit and where she doesn't want to? No. Right? So our, our heart posture... The heart posture for women should be to, to be always willing and ready to follow her husband's lead, even if he's making it difficult and being an idiot. Now, there may be times where a wife is obligated, not just free, but obligated to refuse to submit to her husband's authority. Right? That's why I say comprehensively, not completely. So earlier in the sermon, I told you we were going to come back to this part where I talk about the limits of submission, particularly in relation to unbelievers. Well, here we are. What I'm about to say is something I said last week, but again, I just don't think it can be said enough. All, all human authority is limited authority. So like as we saw last week, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then we saw wives and husbands, wives submit to their husbands as to the Lord, Parents submit to their children as unto the Lord. Bondservants submit to masters as unto the Lord. What we see here is that ultimately the authority is limited by that clause as unto the Lord. So what that means is if somebody in a position of authority tries to lead you to go against the Lord, to sin, to, to, de- to depart from God's holy law, well then you should, you should reject that authority, right? Husbands, if you try to lead your wives into sin, you're abdicating your authority. 
It's not even like she's rebelling against your authority. You have given up. You have authority insofar as you try to lead your wife in the Lord. When you try to lead your wife away from the Lord, you're abdicating your authority. So she's not even rejecting it. You are rejecting it. You're giving it up yourself. Now, uh, what, by the way, I need everybody to learn from Aaron. You see how he's just giving me this constant encouragement? Guys, everybody be more like Aaron. And brother, don't stop, you know. Will, can I get an amen? There it is. Can I get an enthusiastic amen? Nah. <laughs> hey, there it is. Hey, we need Jonathan here. Yeah, both sides of the room. All right. So there may be a time in your marriage, wives, where you have to say something like this to your husband. Baby, honey, pumpkin, I don't know, whatever you call your husband, right? Smoochie. I love you, and I want to lead you. I mean, excuse me, I want you to lead me. I want to submit to you. I want to follow you. So there's that, there's that, that heart posture, right? But you're trying to lead me away from Jesus, and I can't let you lead me there. I cannot follow you there. Now, I know that this is a, a difficult thing to say, especially to your husband, the guy that you have to keep living with even after you say that very uncomfortable thing. I know my wife has had to say that to me. She's had to prevent me from leading her into sin, and I'm sure it wasn't easy for her. But it's something that you have to be prepared to do. We also need to talk about abuse. Wives are not required in the Lord to submit to their husband's abuse, emotional, physical, sexual. That's not something that God has given your husband authority to do in your life, to abuse you. Now, this is a really small church full of close-knit families, and this is the, exactly the kind of place where we would think we don't have to say something about abuse. We all know each other. We love each other. It would never happen in our church. Not good old Mr. Jim. I never thought it could have been good old Mr. Jim. But this is exactly the kind of place where you have to make sure that you say it. You have to make sure. Because what, what do people say when they're being interviewed about abuse that's happened in the life of the church? They just think, oh, I never thought it could have been us. We're such a small, sweet, friendly family. We all love the Lord. It can never happen here, and yet it does. So I just need to tell the women in the church, if any of you are being abused in any way, you need to let somebody know. You need to tell an elder after service. You need to talk to a woman you can trust, a counselor, call the police if you have to. You have to say something. You have to do something. You don't have to submit to that. If there's any men in this room who are sitting there and you know that you're abusing your wife and as I say this, you're nudging her or you're breathing more heavily, you're trying to signal that she better not say anything, you just don't know what's coming to you. You better be prepared because the Lord will not tolerate that. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And wives, you don't have to be afraid. You can say something. You can do something. You can get out of that. Come and talk to me. I don't care what we have to do. We will find a way to protect you because we love you. Now, in closing, I want us to talk about uh, what I like to call the off-brand submission. Off-brand submission. So, some of you may know that I partake of Diet Mountain Dew. It's not cheap, but it's worth it because quality matters. Uh, sometimes people try to be kind and bring me sodas, and that's very nice of them. Sometimes they bring me stuff like Diet Mountain Lightning, and I have no patience for that. It's, it's an off-brand soda. It's just, it's just not the same thing. You, know? you can pretend that your grain O's are the same thing as Cheerios, but they're natto, you know? Almond milk is not milk, okay? Off-brand submission tries to pass as biblical submission, but it's really just a product of deceived women and ignorant men who don't know how to read and understand and apply their Bibles. Off-brand submission will happily substitute submission with a form of manipulation, right? Yeah, baby, I'll do whatever you want, you know? So instead of biblical submission, you have submission as a form of manipulating your husband, or instead of submission, maybe you will 
supplement it with servile complacency. Maybe instead of biblical submission, you'll have a joyless, begrudging service. You know, like, I'll do it if I have to. I guess if the Bible says that, I guess I'll submit. That's off-brand. That's not what Paul wants. He doesn't want wives to go home and say, all right, what do you want me to do? No. The name brand submission that God envisions for wives is strong. It's intelligent. It's impassioned. It's willing. It's capable. It's full of joy. It's confident. It's humble. It's trusting. It's powerful. Everybody turn with me to Proverbs 31. Starting in verse 10, we see about an excellent wife. This is uh, the biblical picture of what it means to be a, a good wife. Now, I think it's been said before in our Sunday school class on, on Proverbs 31 that these are kind of like the highlight reels, right? No, no wife is ever going to be exactly like this all the time, and you'll be crushed if you think that you have to be in order to be loved by Christ and serve, you know, you, you don't, you, this is not you all the time, but this is what we're aiming for, right? This is the high standard. So let's just read it together. And I'll read it out loud. You follow along with me. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant and brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for the household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom. Oh, may we all have wise wives. And the teaching, the teaching, the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty in, is in vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. This woman is a woman under the submission of her husband. But look at her. Look how strong she is. She's called an excellent wife. It says that her husband trusts her. Why does he trust her? because she's a woman of robust character and integrity. Over and over again, she's described as a hard worker, a contributor to the household. She's called wise. She teaches. She communicates truth. She doesn't teach in all the ways that a man teaches, in all the contexts, but in her home, she's a valuable teacher. She conducts business. She contributes to the income of the household. She partakes in the provision. She is fearless and capable. She is so amazing that her husband praises her saying, baby, listen, there's a lot of women out there, but there's nobody like you. All of that in complete submission to her husband. This is name brand submission. This is what we're after. And all of that flows from this. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is greatly to be praised. So ultimately, the, this Proverbs 31 woman, this uh, scholars call her sometimes the warrior woman, she understands that her submission to her husband and her service in the household is ultimately an act of praise that's being offered up to her Lord, not to her husband. So to the wives in this room and to the young women who may soon be wives, I hope you feel empowered 
and encouraged to do what the Bible says, to submit to your husbands. I hope you don't feel pressured. I hope you feel rejuvenated for this task. I pray that your submission is not begrudging or hesitant or half-hearted, but complete and confident and hopeful. Now, we often think about new ways to strategize, to be creative, to get the gospel out to the, to the lost in the world, and that's great. Let's not stop doing that. But we shouldn't forget that the Lord has built a gospel proclamation into our marriages, Right? So preach the gospel with words when you can, as often as you can, and let your marriage preach the gospel, wives, as you submit to your husband in this way. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a woman, you're thinking, I just cannot do this. I'm sorry, I don't care. I, I hear you. I, I, I think I see it in the Bible. I just, I just can't submit to a man. You know, I, I don't know what may all be behind that. I'm sure there's some abuse some pain. There's a lot of history there. And I can't even imagine what that must be like. But underneath all of that, that pain, that suffering, that history, you should know that it's not just you. We are, all of us, prone to bristle at this idea of submission. And the reason why is because because of sin. Ever since our, our parents, Adam and Eve, the first husband, the first wife, ever since they rebelled in the garden, we, their children, have been following in their footsteps. And I want you to know that every single person in this room, every single person alive today or that has ever lived or that will ever live has to submit to a man one day and his name is Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord and they'll do it in complete submission. Don't let whoever has hurt you in this life keep you from understanding the joy that you can have in submitting to Christ and what's promised to you in the next life. You're gonna have to submit eventually. Why not do so now, willingly, joyfully? Why not let Christ serve you and love you and lead you like the perfect man that he is? Why don't you let him lead the way in your life and show you what real submission looks like? And maybe that'll help you submit to a husband. Every single one of us in this room is called to stop rebelling against the authority of the Lord and to entrust our souls to him. And if we do, I promise it will go well for us. Let's pray. Father, you have strengthened us for the task at hand. You, you, you demand a lot of us. You give us obligations but you also give us the strength we need to fulfill those obligations. You give us the motivation, the encouragement, and we need it, Lord. So we pray that you would help us to be more holy and more happy after what we've seen in your word today. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Please stand. wondrous mystery in the dawning 